taking a little break from the Holy Spirit series. Um, I wasn't planning on it, but then sermon prep day happened and felt like I met with the Lord and went in a bit of a different direction. But as many of you know, this weekend, yesterday or on Thursday, depending on how school went, a lot of people honoring uh, Truth and Reconciliation Day, especially or birthed out of wanting to um, see some reparations for the Indigenous people of Canada, peoples of Canada. And that phrase, truth and reconciliation, has happened in other parts of the world as well, wherever there's been large-spread mistreatment of one people group by another. Sometimes there has been a process to try to address it by telling the truth about what happened and then seeking a way forward. So I think something like this happened in Rwanda. I think uh, South Africa's had events like this as well. It doesn't always happen. But um, that's what yesterday was about. And I do have some, I just want to make some brief comments of it and then want to pull back and look at reality from Scripture. And I hope this makes sense by the time I'm done. But brief comments. I think a believer in Jesus should want good things to happen to their neighbors as a general rule. And if people have had bad stuff happen to them, it's no harm to acknowledge that that's happened and to want good for them. Um, And I think as believers in Jesus, we would want good things to happen, especially people being reconciled to their creator. And so, everything's political, everything's a mess. There's lots of stuff that's a problem. But in general, dealing with historical events and wanting things to get better, I think a believer in Jesus should want good things for their neighbors. Um, I feel ambivalent about any political thing, though, in part because, and this is my biggest thing, if there are people groups, there's like the indigenous and the non-indigenous people, and reconciliation involves coming together as neighbors, uh, the non-indigenous people of Canada aren't doing great. Uh, We are in a massive tailspin of decline as a culture. And so I sometimes feel sad for the indigenous people to be reconciling to the rest of us at this stage of history when we are falling apart like crazy. Which may be a grievance you haven't heard of before. but So my hope is that, and I know there's lots of people praying and lots of people believing in Jesus, there's my hope is that the people of God are involved in our country and amongst indigenous people. And where there's Jesus, there's hope. But uh, I don't want to put my hope in political stuff, especially right now when the political powers that don't know Jesus aren't doing that great to start off with. But... What we're going through right now is just the latest 
in a history of horrible things that we call human history. The stuff that happened in Canada is just the most recent of a worldwide history of horrible things happening where people do horrible things to people and people groups do horrible things to other people groups and people groups take turns doing horrible things to each other. This is human history. And there's a people group in China right now that are essentially being like really genocided. It's slow because people have learned how to hide what they're doing more. But that's happening in China. The 20th century, starting in like the 1900s through to the 2000s, was the bloodiest century of all time. If you only take what governments did to their own people. Forget the First and Second World War. If you just add up the bodies of what governments did to their own people, it's still the bloodiest century of human history. So sadly, and there's no excuse in this, but sadly we are normal. To do wrong to your neighbor is normal. To be wronged by your neighbor is normal. For horrible things to happen from one people group to another is normal. And yet we know in our hearts it is wrong. And so I want to go back as far as God takes us in human history to give us perspective on why human history is in a constant state of hurting each other and trying to fix it. And very often, the remedies we bring to try to fix things carry the seed for the next great catastrophe. World War II happened because of how poorly they were tried to resolve World War I. And World War I happened because of how poorly they resolved the conflict before that, whether it was the Napoleonic Wars or whatever. So, why don't we go back to the garden? This is chapter 3 of Genesis. If you've been following the story, chapter 1, God miraculously and supernaturally and without anyone's help forms a well-ordered and life-filled universe. And he declares over it, this is very good. Chapter 2, which is becoming one of my favorite chapters of the Bible because it's the one chapter with people in it where nothing's broken yet. That's why I love it. Anybody like it when nothing's broken? Right? Maybe people who work in renovations and stuff like that one minute where it's all fixed and nobody's gotten stains on the wall or spilled something on the carpet, right? Uh, COVID was wonderful for us here at Calvary because we finished the reno and then nobody came in here for two years. And it was so clean. You know, we had to clean up like one carpet stain, one coffee stain on their church floor for two years. Yes, it was wonderful. And that's what I like about chapter 2. It's the sinless chapter. God and man and woman are relating to each other and creation and nothing's gone wrong yet. And then we hit chapter 3. And so I'm going to take some time just walking us through here what I see going on and then explaining a bit about how things have gone so wrong and then pointing us to Jesus as God's response 
And this will be a downer of a message, okay? This is not going to be as happy or as exciting as some Sundays. And that is the truth part. When bad stuff happens, like, it doesn't help to not know. Um, This is why most of us go to the doctor, right? We don't go to the doctor so he can just tell us everything's fine when things aren't fine. And so this is why you have Genesis chapter 3. It's so that people can know what happened in order to understand why everything is happening the way it is. This is the story from God's perspective. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? Now people argue about is this just a serpent, is just a snake? If you read further in the Bible, it becomes pretty clear that this is kind of like a uh, snake incarnate form of Satan. Especially the fact that Satan knows that there has been some interchange between Adam and God about, like there's been a command. You know, snakes don't understand that stuff, but uh, spiritual beings do. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither can you touch it, lest you die. And that little phrase there, neither shall you touch it, was not what God said. So you have this little twist going on, a crack in the dam. But the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die. So the serpent comes in with a denial of what God said would happen. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Remember that tree that we're talking about here is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is planted right beside the tree of life in the midst of the Garden of Eden. So there's this half-truth here. Yes, their eyes will be opened, but what their eyes are open to isn't going to be great. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. So God had given us them this blessing with a boundary. He'd given them this command, eat of every single tree in paradise. It's just you and your wife. Eve is the most beautiful woman in the world. Adam is the happiest guy in the universe. And they've got this one thing not to do. Don't eat that fruit. And they did it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. So the serpent was right. Their eyes were opened. And they knew that they were naked. That was not what they were expecting. Because up to this point they'd been naked, but they'd been unashamed. They'd been at peace. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So now these trees that were given to man and woman as this blessing from God are now the people are trying to protect themselves from God with this gift that he had given them with a blessing. Have you ever tried to use your blessings as a defense from God? I don't need you anymore. I got some sweet, sweet, sweet cash. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? 
See, God is a good God, and he asks questions. Did he not know? Of course he knew. He's God. But he wanted them to have a chance to talk. He wanted them to have a chance to explain themselves. And the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Notice the blame shifting a little bit there. This is her fault. And then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Parent CE 77. That's, that's really interesting. I, so, you gotta check your tag right now. Notice the woman though, also blame shifting. Cause the, the snake did deceive her, but didn't deceive her. He just told her, this will be great. And she got what she wanted, but it wasn't great. Okay, so up to this point, God's listened. He's asked. People have had an opportunity to, sh- to give their perspective. They didn't do a great job of it. You kind of wonder sometimes what the story would have been. What if Adam had just said, oh, I sinned against you, God. Please forgive me. What if he'd said that? You know, What if Eve had said, oh, I got deceived. Please forgive me. What if she'd said that instead of just blaming? You wonder, right? But here comes the Lord's response. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and above all the beasts of the field and all your belly you shall go and the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Which is how snakes live. And I kind of think what God is doing is here. He's like, okay, Satan, you want to become like a snake? Then you get to live like a snake. You're going to be stuck on the ground. These are pictures of defeat. These are pictures of being vanquished. Verse 15, and we'll come back to this one. And I will put enmity. Enmity is a fancy word that means I will make someone hate you like an enemy between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now here come some consequences for humanity. And this is where it gets really applicable for us. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth your, bring forth children. Ladies, is this true? Okay, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have not eaten of the and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Anybody have pain in their life? Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plant of the fields. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. From out of it you were taken for it. You are dust, and dust you shall return. So there's death. Anybody die in human history? Yeah. This is one of the weird things about being human. We know everybody dies. We know it just feels wrong that people die. We know someday we're going to die but we live like we aren't because in our souls we know we're meant to live and live and live and we want to live. It's not natural to die. It's a consequence of the great rebellion. That desire to live forever in joy that all of you have, that's natural and normal according to how we were made. And we need to get it back. Now here's a sign of hope. The man called his wife 
name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. Eve comes from the Hebrew word Chava, which means life. We really should call her life or Zoe, but they go with Eve here. Zoe is Greek for life. It's a great name. Um, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and live and eat and live forever. Dot, dot, dot. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground which he had taken. And he drove out the man. And at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim, which is like a fiery angel and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. So they were exiled out of the presence of God, Eden temple especially so that they didn't eat the tree of life and live forever in a fallen state. Even though death is a curse, there is a little bit of a kindness in it because we won't go on being evil forever. So that's the story. And I want to try to wrap this up. Boy, I could talk about this for hours and days. But I want to draw out three perspectives that are important for us in reading this story if we're going to view the world sanely. And the first thing I want to point out is our spiritual status, or the spiritual status of human beings. This event is often called the fall by people, so if I refer to it as a fall, you know what I'm talking about. There was a tremendous transformation in human beings' spiritual status when this event took place. Beforehand, we were the non-broken image bearers of God. God took his whole time, according to the story in chapter, chapter 1, creating this intricately made universe where there was room for all this life, and then he filled it all up, and the capstone and the pièce de résistance and the very best, best, best part was he made human beings in his image, which means we had this special capacity to relate to God with love and to communicate with him and a special mission to represent God in the world. We are the translation of the invisible spiritual God into flesh. So for instance, everybody see this painting over here? If you can't see it, we did invite you to come to the front at some point. That painting is not a picture of Revelation Jesus. It is just a bunch of what? Tony, oil? Is that oil? Acrylic. Acrylic. That's just plastic on more plastic in wood. Right? That's what it is. Technically, materially, that is just plastic. Those aren't words. That is just light bouncing off of a shiny screen. That's all it is. In the material world, I'm just chemicals. And pinching your skin isn't pain. It's just electricity in chemicals inside calcium with a little bit of, a little bit less every day of this stuff on top. It's just stuff. 
But for human beings that live in God's world that was made full of meaning, when you take plastic and you put it in the right place, it starts to look like someone. And then if you make that someone look like they're doing something, all of a sudden it starts having meaning. And that picture means something. And these words, these light things bouncing off that get projected out of that doohickey, and I have no idea what that, how that even does that. It bounces off there, it goes into your eyes, the shape means something. We mean something. To be made in the image of God means that you mean something and you matter. And to be made a woman means you mean something. You mean what God intended you to mean when he made a female image bearer. And if you're made a man, you mean what God intended you to mean when he made a male image bearer. We have meaning. And the chemicals are there to say something about God. And we had this awesome love relationship with God, so much so that the man and the woman could walk around with nothing on in the presence of God, and there was no shame, and there was no fear, and there was no disgrace, and there was no guilt. There was just love and joy and fun and adventure. And getting some dirt under your fingernails while you worked that garden. And it was all good. But then the snake came. An influential spiritual being. Which sought to usurp our status as the living paintings of God. And bring us under his control through twisted words. And bring about our obedience to him in rebellion against our creator. And we went for it. And so to summarize the dramatic change of spiritual status. The Holy Spirit writing about the common existence of humanity after the fall, says this in Ephesians chapter 2. Now he's talking to Christians, so he says were, but this is what is for those outside of the resurrection life of Jesus. It says, and you, maybe I'll just change it to are, okay? I'll just talk to me like I'm out of Jesus. Rob, you are dead in your trespasses and sins because of how you walk following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in you, sons of disobedience, among whom you now live in the passions of your flesh, carrying out the desires of your body and your mind, and are by nature a child of wrath, just like everybody else. Truth number one about why we need to be reconciled to God is because apart from that, we're not in a spiritual neutral space. We are actually easily led 
by the spiritual forces of darkness that are in rebellion against God. When we're apart from Christ, when we're not reconciled to Christ, we think we're the bosses of our spirits and our souls, but we actually are the lapdogs of the serpent. Not good, friends. And we... They thought they were taking control of their lives when they ate the fruit, but they were actually entering into spiritual slavery by eating the fruit. The promise is, if you eat this, you'll become like God, knowing good and evil. But the effect was they became terrified of God and slaves to that which is evil. So when I get up here and say, I don't have a ton of hope (laughs) for political stuff, it's because I really do believe that Canada, apart from Christ, is led by the prince of the power of the air. And he likes to give unity against God, and he likes to give the taste of unity apart from God, and then he likes to come back in and tempt one of those sides to betray the other side again and keep the cycle going. So this is, I, I don't have any grievance other than that I know history and I know theological reality. Every people group, apart from Christ, is just one generation away from a genocide. It's what we do. And sometimes, especially in kind of like Christian-influenced cultures, you will have times of truth and reconciliation. But there was a the political genocide in Cambodia within some of our lifetimes under the Khmer Rouge that has never been admitted to. 1.4 million people disappeared. And if some Americans hadn't snuck into one of their offices and taken pictures of the people who were executed, there would be zero evidence or admission that it ever happened. So, not hopeful. (laughs) Not hopeful. And you can see it with Adam and Eve how the serpent came in there twisting the truth and then when God shows up, they start twisting the truth. And they start reflecting the image of the snake, the truth twister, instead of the image of God, the truth speaker. Reality number two, our misshapen souls. One of the reasons I'm really grateful that I got caught in the uh, bondage to pornography as a young man is that I learned that I can never trust myself again. I cannot trust myself to make the right choices. I can't trust myself to tell the truth. I can't trust myself to do what's right for the people around me. I cannot trust myself because I've proven that I am capable of wickedness and betrayal and great sin. Because apart from the restoration of Christ and the Holy Spirit, I have a misshapen soul. And when Adam and Eve ate that fruit and they realized what was going on, they became under the bondage of shame towards each other. They got to get that, get those, get those banana leaves on there, get the fig leaves on there. And it's so pathetic. They're like trying to make clothes out of leaves. 
but they're afraid. And all of a sudden, their souls are doing things they were never meant to do, like be afraid of God and be afraid of each other. And then when God shows up and said, what happens? You know, <laughs> Adam, good husbanding 101. It's her fault. <laughs> the anti-husband, the anti-Christ husband who tries to sacrifice his wife to save his own skin. It's antichrist. He's antichrist. He's, he's antichrist. Because Jesus dies for his bride, and Adam is throwing his bride. Kill her, God. Kill her. She made me do it. Kill her, God. It's antichrist. And his soul is bent, and he can't even see that he's doing it. And I love this story because, you know, as much as it's bad, um, the patience of God. He knows in this event that Adam and Eve have unleashed every single horror that will ever be experienced. And he's shows us what self-control and patience looks like. There's consequences, but he does not lose it. Oh, our misshapen souls. The prophet Jeremiah, in I think it's chapter 17, says about the human heart, Oh, the heart, it is deceptively wicked and totally evil. Who can know it? And he's like a prophet. And he's like, the human heart is just wicked and evil all the way down. The Apostle Paul, writing in Romans chapter 7, talks about his own relationship with the law, with a sinful heart. He says, When I read, thou shalt not steal, even though it's God's word and it's true and good, sin rises up in my heart, and now all of a sudden I want to steal. Right? Like, how do you get someone to touch something? You put the don't touch sign on it. And you will find a fingerprint. If you put don't touch on a piece of glass with an arrow right here, you will find fingerprints on that thing. I had a professor at Regent one time, which is a Christian college, who was saying that he was working with somebody and he found working with Christian professors, that if you wanted to get something done, what you would do is float the opposite idea to them. I think we should pave the, repave the paveway or the driveway at our college instead of building a new garden. No, 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 no. Well, actually, the new garden, blah, 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 blah. Because they're all professors and they know best and so... And they're trained to be critical... But there's something about the human heart. And one scholar who I think was pretty good and didn't know his stuff said, one of the unique things about Christianity and the Bible is how hopeless it says the human condition is. Almost every other religion, the problem is you're not trying hard enough. But you can do it. For us, God says your souls are destroyed. And every good idea of yours is sin. If I don't save you, you're gone. 
<laughs> and that's the good news, is that God decided to save us anyways. But it is a catastrophe of our human souls. And number three, the relational wreckage. So let's just skip back here a little bit. And this is where it becomes a little bit more common for us. When God's talking about these things, you know, he says to the woman here in verse 16, I will multiply your pain in childbearing and your desire will be contrary to your husband and he will rule over you. This is just the start of things. And so, yes, it means like, yeah, childbearing is painful and everybody who has given birth to a child without um, the miracles of modern medicine, it is excruciating. And for most women throughout history, it was the, the like most predictable near-death experience they would have. But encapsulated in that verse is all the difficulty that would ever occur between the generations. All the brokenness between mother and daughter and father and son and mother and son and father and daughter. All the brokenness as these relationships of parent to child, which should be some of the best relationships ever, are one generation to the next plagued with hurt and rejection and rebellion and scars and hatred and abuse and misuse and every single kind of betrayal between the generations. And then that description there, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, um, a sense of wanting to overtake, kind of like the snake overtook man and woman, but he shall rule over you. So you've got this like, this is like the battle of the sexes. This is the, the, the prediction of constant power struggles between people in the planet. And it's going to start between Adam and Eve, but it's going to go on. It's going to go on to Cain and Abel. And it's going to go on from generation to generation until you get to a point a few chapters later when this guy named Lamech, who now has two wives because he's ruling over the women in his life, is boasting about how he has killed a man for injuring him. And all the devastation that's ever going to happen in human relationship is all predicted in this verse. And I think there's a reason why when God delivers the consequence speech to man and woman, it's not like it's exclusive to them, but it is highlighted to their particular purpose in creation. And it seems to me, and I could be wrong, that Eve is really the focus and the joint and the axle of all human relationship. Number one, because there was no human relationship before she was made. There was just solo Adam. So when she was made, with her came the first human relationship. But because she's going to give birth to every human being that's ever going to live out of her, she is the source of all human relationship. And so when she rebelled, all human relationship became poisoned whether that's family, whether that's city, whether that's nation, or whether that's nation against nation. Pain between the generations, betrayal between peers. Normal. This is something to weep about. 
Every church splits right there. And I can't even imagine, like, you wonder if people who have gone to heaven, I think Eve went to heaven. I think she repented when Seth was born. She comes to this, like, lowly place of saying, God's given me this child, and she's coming to a place of faith again. But if she knows what's happened on the earth, can you imagine the heartache where all her children... Crazy. And because we wouldn't stay faithful to God... We can't stay faithful to each other. This is the consequence. We won't, we didn't stay faithful to the one who made us. We can't stay faithful to each other. There is no good thing apart from God. So, this is where it gets good. I'm going to flip around a little bit. Anybody depressed yet? It's true. But I would like to say, as a little bit of a history buff, it can be hard to be happy. Because I know dirt on almost every single nation in the world right now. You only have to go back a couple hundred years, and you know every single nation has been a horror to somebody. It can be discouraging. (laughs) It's so bad. Little old Steinbeck, we can be like, ah, Steinbeck, but. The last few generations in Canada have been a bit of a a reprieve. Like that we haven't gone to war in quite a while. It's been a short reprieve. I don't know how long it'll last. It's not normal. War is normal. Disease is normal. Pandemics are normal. That's normal. Anyhow. Anyhow. Taking seriously how bad things are. There is this wonderful prophecy of hope right in the midst of the declaration of crisis and condemnation. Where the Lord says to the snake, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Which is interesting because... Yeah, talking to the snake there. And so, the reason we need truth about reconciliation is so that we want God's reconciliation. And for me, the thing that's crazy about this story is that God tells us how he's going to reconcile people to himself right in the midst of declaring the carnage of the loss of relationship. It's like before he even tells Eve, you're going to hate what you've done. And before he even tells Adam, you're never going to have a peaceful day again. You're going to work and you're going to work and then you're going to work and then you're going to eat dirt. Before he gets there, he says, and I'm going to take care of this. So he says to the serpent and he curses the serpent. He doesn't curse Adam and Eve because they are going to give life and ultimately humanity will win. But the, the serpent is cursed. It's going to ultimately lose. And he says... I'm going to destroy you, Satan, and this is all I need. I need a woman who hates you and a son who's going to hurt to defeat you. That's the plan. That's reconciliation. And this is weird because when we start talking about reconciliation, you know, it's a lot of apologies first. But in God's plan, it's like, first I'm going to make hate. 
I'm going to make the right kind of hate. I'm going to take your hatred against me. I'm going to defeat that. I'm going to take your hatred against each other. I'm going to destroy that. And I'm going to teach a woman to hate Satan. I'm going to take a woman. I'm going to teach her to hate sin. And she's going to give birth to a son who's going to say yes to suffering to destroy all your works. You might know where I'm going to end up here. You might know the end of the story a little bit if you stuck around for a bit. But if you can, this here, you, you know, Bible people. Anybody like the Bible? Here's the thing. Start the Bible in Genesis and read it all the way to the end, just asking the story. Do I see the seed of the woman and the bruised heel son progressing through Scripture here? There you go. There's a year. And there are little views of this. I think Moses' mom is this kind of woman. She's living under tyranny. She's living under a king in Egypt who said, who, who knows that strong men are a threat to tyrannical government. And so they say, we want to kill all these Jewish babies before they grow up to be strong men who believe in God and not my God. And she knows the edict and she still has the baby and she keeps him alive defying the order, and God takes the child of this Satan-hating woman, bruises him by sending him into exile for 40 years, but then brings him back to destroy Egypt with a stick. I think you see this story in Deborah and Baruch a little bit in the book of Judges. You've got this prophetess, Deborah, who hates her some sin, Especially when she sees it in weak-kneed young men. And she raises up a Barak, Baruch, Barak, one of those two, and sends him out to battle, but he's not quite up to the challenge, and so Jael has to finish the job. Who's also one of these snake-hating women. Doesn't mind ruining a carpet. In order to serve the purposes of God. But there's flaws and sins in all of these like foreshadows of it. So ultimately you have this fulfilled when Eve says to God, as the sorry, Mary says, let it be done to your servant according to your word. And she takes on the role of complete submission to the word of God instead of rebellion like Eve. She says, I will completely submit to the word of God in hatred to Satan and sin. And she bears the Lord Jesus Christ, whose heels are literally destroyed through crucifixion on a cross outside of Jerusalem around the year 33 AD. And through his sacrificial death, God accepts it as a sin offering, an offering that covers human sin, so that through that woman's faith and through her son's suffering, the reconciliation to God can come. And we can go home. And we can have a relationship with the Father that has no guilt in it, has no exile in it, has no shame in it. Our bent souls can start getting straightened out by the, the working power of the Holy Spirit. And we can start to build relationships with each other that kind of look like they always could have if we hadn't gone down the dark road. That's the good news.
Okay, I've got no time left. So here's the application for everybody who loves reconciliation. Let's double down and triple down on it being through Jesus. How God tells the story, we cannot hold together reconciliation without him. And so we need a hundred times more of him than we ever knew. Let's make it about Jesus. Let's make it by trust in Jesus and hope in Jesus and the name of Jesus. You know, Jesus isn't white. Do we know that? Can we just say that again? (laughs) He also isn't indigenous, North American. He was a Jew. But he's the true Jew, the son of Adam who started a new race. Do you know we're all cousins? We can all trace our lineage back to Noah, at least. All I want for you this morning is to go like, if you have been through hell, I just, without minimizing anything, I just want to point you back to the book and say, unfortunately, that's normal. And God's answer is Jesus. Jesus. Jesus, the one who came to destroy the works of the devil, including where I participate with the devil. Jesus, who came to bring us home to God, even when sometimes I don't want that relationship. It's about Jesus. It's about Jesus. It's about Jesus. Love Jesus. Love Jesus. Love Jesus. Love Jesus. Trust Jesus. Hope in Jesus. Hope in Jesus. And you know what? We can look at stuff and we can say, there's something wrong going over there, something wrong going over there. Trust Jesus. Ask him if there's anything going wrong in you and me. That's the only thing we can really control is how we are trusting in Jesus. And if I am trusting in Jesus. So trust Jesus. I'm going to invite the band up. Okay, Calvary, starting today, you are delivered from being a good Christian. You are delivered. I don't care how long you've lived in Steinbeck for, you're not a good Christian anymore. This is not a goal of anybody here. We are people who are trusting in Jesus. That's our story. We are trusting the only one who can defeat Satan. His name is Jesus. We're trusting the one who came back from the dead, who never told us we get to tell him what he can't do anymore. All things are possible through Christ. I don't want a good church. What am I saying? I do not want to provide you a good church. I want you to love Jesus.
I do not want you to have a good Sunday morning. I want you to see and love Jesus. He's our only hope. I don't even want you to be a good husband. What am I saying? I want you to trust and obey Jesus. And take upon yourself a supernatural calling to help your family experience the Savior through your trust and obedience. It's about Jesus. Thank you, God, for all the church troubles in the last two years. Thank you for showing us that this is not stable or predictable or anything we can keep. But we have Jesus. And He has you. And I want you to prove it by going and taking Jesus into every other hour of this week. Bring him home. Bring him to work. This is just the place you get yelled at. And you do the work of the kingdom everywhere else. Okay, that's an overstatement, but you know what I mean. You're saved. You're reconciled. You're redeemed love him. He will do it. 